Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for bringing us together as you have. And I pray, as always, that I'd not get in the way of what you planned to do, but that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last lesson, as we began to study the book of Esther, we were introduced to King Xerxes, the ruler of the vast Persian Empire. We learned that he was a man of great power and even greater fleshly appetites, who was not used to hearing the word no. Accordingly, when Queen Vashti refused his command to appear before him and his guests during one of their drunken feasts, he had her banished from the palace for daring to refuse him. Later, when Xerxes returned home in defeat from his military campaign in Greece, he seemed to realize the foolishness of his hasty decision with regard to his wife. But he was unable to do anything to restore her because, according to the custom of the Medes and the Persians, a law once written could never be changed, not even by the king. In an attempt to lift his depression, his advisers quickly suggested that the most beautiful virgins in all of Persia should be brought to the palace so the king could choose a new wife from among them. Now, it's easy to think of this as being rather like a beauty contest, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. In actuality, these young women were being forced into a life of virtual slavery. Once in the king's harem, they were his to do with as he pleased. There was no escape for them. Among the young women brought to the palace was a beautiful Jewish girl by the name of Hadassah. She was also known as Esther, which was a Persian name meaning star. This lovely young woman had certainly known hardship in her life having lost both her parents at a young age. But being forcibly taken with so many others to the palace to remain there forever must have been a terrifying situation for her to face. At best, she could hope to somehow please Xerxes and become his queen, but any favours that might bring wouldn't make up for having a merciless tyrant for a husband. At worst, she would be relegated to becoming one of hundreds of royal concubines, little more than a prisoner in a king's harem, with no hope for any other kind of life. It must have been an extremely fearful and confusing time in her life. We pick up her story in chapter 2, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. 
We don't know everything Mordecai taught Esther about her heritage, but she very evidently did know that she belonged to God's people, and that identity put her in a vulnerable position. Not everyone in the kingdom was happy with the continued presence of the Jews. Mordecai appears to have been in some sort of service to the king, so he would have known all the political dynamics of the day. He was so concerned for Esther's safety that he instructed her not to reveal her Jewish background, and day after day he paced back and forth near the palace where she was held, hoping for word of her and how she was doing. Then the writer explains what these young women experienced inside the palace walls. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaaskanaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. After an entire year of costly and luxurious beauty treatments, the young women would be taken for one frightful night to the king's bed. If they did not stand out in any way from the others or capture his interest, they would be downgraded to the status of a concubine and be transferred into the care of yet another eunuch, Shaashgaz never to be seen or heard from again except on the king's impulses. So on their one evening with the king, they were allowed to take with them anything that they thought might help him to desire them more. What a sad and degrading process it was. Verse 15 says that when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. It seems that Esther, in addition to great physical beauty, also had a beautiful spirit about her, even in the midst of her very difficult circumstances. Verse 15 says she won the favor of everyone who saw her. When it was her turn, she sought the wisdom of Haggai, the king's eunuch, and followed his suggestions as to what she should take into the king's bedchamber. Whatever those items might have been, they were nothing compared to the inner adornment she took with her, the favor of God. His presence was with her whether she was aware of it or not. The story continues in verse 17. 
Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. It almost sounds like a fairy tale or a movie, doesn't it? Xerxes was captivated by Esther and made her his queen. Some translations say that she not only won his favor, but she won his kindness as well. Delighted with his new bride, he declared a national holiday and gave a great banquet in Esther's honor. He even gave gifts throughout the land. Only Almighty God could have brought that to pass. As one commentator says, this humble Jewish maiden, an orphan, dependent for her living upon the charity of her cousin Mordecai, this girl became the first woman in all Persia, the wife of the most powerful living monarch on earth, the queen of an empire comprised of more than half the world of that time. The Lord raised Esther to a position of influence in much the same way that he'd raised up others for his divine purposes before her. You might remember how God raised up Joseph from the slavery his brothers sold him into and made him second to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, enabling him to help his very brothers survive in a time of famine. God saved Moses as a baby from being condemned to death in the Nile River, and he brought him to a place of prominence in Egypt in order to deliver his people from slavery. The Lord also protected Daniel in the lion's den and made him a trusted advisor to kings in the difficult days of Israel's Babylonian and Persian exile. Whenever his people were threatened, God had a way of raising up someone he could use in their deliverance. And as we shall soon see, it would be no different in this case. Time passed, but verse 19 indicates a potential shift in Esther's position. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Perhaps, like me, you're wondering why the virgins were assembled a second time, if Xerxes was so captivated with Esther as his queen. The text doesn't make it plain, but kings in those days thought having many wives and concubines was a status indicator. And so it may be, as many scholars suggest, that Xerxes had just got bored and thought the excitement of looking for another wife might help. Apparently, some interval of time has passed between Esther's coronation in verse 18 and the search for another wife in verse 19. 
Mordecai has come back into the picture as well. When we last saw him in verse 11, he was pacing up and down outside of the court of women, fearing for Esther's well-being. Now we see him sitting at the king's gate, a place where nobles in service to the king gathered. But it was no accident that he was there. We read in verse 21, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. As Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, he happened to overhear two men plotting to kill King Xerxes. It's not at all surprising that people would have wanted Xerxes dead. I'm sure that any one of the fathers of those countless women the king had forced to leave their families might have killed the king if they had a chance. He also had political enemies. There were no shortage of those who wanted to take his place. In fact, Xerxes would actually be assassinated some 13 years later. Mordecai quickly reported the plot to Queen Esther, who in turn told the king, giving Mordecai the credit but still not revealing anything of her identification as one of the exiles. The whole story, including Mordecai's crucial role, was written down in the records of the king's reign and filed away. I think we can learn something here from what Mordecai and Esther did. Despite their circumstances, both honoured the king and wanted to protect him from his enemies. They were faithful to their duties in the places God had put them, though they apparently gained nothing from their loyalty and service. However, they were doing what Jeremiah's letter had told the exiles to do so many years before. He had told them to seek the peace and prosperity of the place to which God had taken them, because their peace would depend on it. And that's exactly what they did, never guessing what their obedience to God's earlier command would bring about. It would be incorrect for us to view Esther's position in the palace and Mordecai's presence at that particular spot at the king's gate on that particular day as being mere coincidence. Though no one recognized it, God's hand was at work setting the stage for what he was going to do in the future. Enter the villain. In chapter 3, we learn that those Xerxes did not reward Mordecai for his faithful service. He did honor someone else. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. 
And the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. The man Xerxes appointed to oversee all of his affairs was named Haman, the Agagite. We will see why that identification is important in a moment. Haman was given the highest seat of honor in the kingdom, elevating him above all the other nobles in the land. And the king even commanded that all the royal officials at his gate should bow down to Haman whenever he passed by. Mordecai would have been under this order. However, when everyone else complied... He would not. Day after day, he stood while everyone else bowed down. The other officials were shocked and asked Mordecai why he kept refusing the command. At some point, Mordecai must have revealed that he was a Jew, and when the frustrated officials went to Haman to complain about his behavior, they just happened to mention this juicy little tidbit of information. They wanted to know if his actions would be tolerated, especially since he was one of the Jewish exiles. Haman was not pleased. In fact, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. The thing that really stands out to me here is Haman's overbearing pride. Only one man out of a multitude did not bow down to him, but it made him angry enough to destroy all of Mordecai's people throughout the entire kingdom. When you look at the story, you have to wonder why Mordecai would be so stubborn in his refusal, especially when doing so would come at such a great price for his people. I think that there are several things we should consider, though. It could be that Haman was strutting about like some kind of deity to be worshipped. By bowing down to Haman, Mordecai would then betray his allegiance to the king of kings, the god of the Jewish people. We can't be sure, but Mordecai likely knew the story of the three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who years before, in the early days of the exile, had disobeyed a similar order. And just as they stood their ground then, refusing to bow before something other than the Lord their God, so too did Mordecai. He wasn't going to kiss anyone's feet for favor. The only favor he needed was God's. But there may have been something else in play here. We're told in Esther 3 verse 1 that Haman was an Agagite. In other words, he was likely a descendant of Agag, who had once been king of the Amalekites. 
God promised Joshua that he would destroy the Amalekite people because they had continually attacked the Jews without mercy, picking off the old, the weak, and the children. Many years later, God instructed King Saul to destroy the Amalekites and all that they owned, including their livestock. However, instead of following the Lord's command, the book of 1 Samuel tells us that Saul and his men took the best of the plunder and livestock for themselves, which God had specifically forbidden. More importantly, Saul also chose to keep King Agag alive. When the prophet Samuel confronted him, Saul then lied about what he'd done, claiming to have destroyed the Amalekites and their possessions completely. He would lose his kingship for this disobedience. Samuel himself killed King Agag, but some of the Amalekites survived and continued to torment the Jewish people. Apparently, they never disappeared completely as a people because hundreds of years later, one of their descendants would come against the Jewish people once again in the person of Haman, the Agagite. It's interesting that Mordecai's heritage was also mentioned here in the story. Esther 2 verse 5 revealed that Mordecai was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, which interestingly was the same tribe that King Saul had been from. No wonder Mordecai refused to bow before this man, and no wonder Haman loathed him, realizing who his ancestor had been. The story of Saul and the Amalekites reminds us, though, that although disobedience to the Lord may at first appear to only affect those in the immediate situation, rebellion to God's commands can have consequences that affect many others for years to come. Having determined to wipe Mordecai's people off the face of the earth, Haman then sought guidance from his gods. Verse 7 says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. In the tradition of the day, he cast lots to determine when the people should die, and their destruction was set for 12 months later. Haman began to set his plan in motion. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. 
Haman was very sly in how he approached King Xerxes. He painted the Jewish people as being a threat because they kept themselves separate from everyone else and observed customs very different to their neighbors. He suggested that as a people they were not obeying the king's laws when the only command that had not been followed was the order for Mordecai to bow to Haman. But perhaps the most despicable part was that he even offered to pay for the privilege of destroying these people. Having been convinced that it was not in his best interest to tolerate them, Xerxes gave Haman permission to do as he saw fit and keep the money. Haman must have been so pleased. The royal secretaries were summoned to write out all of Haman's orders, and they were devastating. Every resident of the kingdom was commanded to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Haman then sealed the scrolls with Xerxes' ring, setting his hatred in the unchangeable law of the Medes and the Persians. This proclamation was quickly delivered throughout the kingdom, written in every language so that there would be no misunderstanding. But verse 15 says the king and Haman sat down to drink. And doesn't that reveal the kind of men they were? They could deliberately condemn thousands of people to be massacred and then sit down to congratulate one another on another crisis averted, another problem resolved, another day at the office. However, in the city of Susa itself, confusion reigned as people began to understand what the law meant and what they would be required to do. And among the Jews throughout the entire kingdom, there was great mourning and distress. Chapter 4 When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. As we've said, the name of God is not mentioned directly in the book of Esther, but this outpouring of grief on the part of the Jewish people was evidence that they were, in fact, appealing to him. All of these things were universally recognized as signs of extreme grief and distress. People would tear their clothing and put on garments of rough Hessian cloth. They would pile ashes on their heads, weep and wail and go without food and drink, crying out to God for his help. Mordecai probably made his mourning in public to alert Esther to the fact that something was terribly wrong and to get the news of this serious situation to her inside of the palace. Their people, her people, 
were desperately crying out to their God for his help. Would he hear? Would he answer? Well, next week, we'll learn what he did. I think this lesson speaks to something many of us, though, might be wondering about. So before we conclude, I want us to consider what we would do when we were harmed through no fault of our own. How do we respond when we cannot begin to understand why God has allowed or is allowing evil things to happen? The Jewish people here notably turned toward God rather than away from him. They did not immediately look to others for help or put strategies in place to right the situation on their own. Instead, they sought God's intervention through prayer and fasting, and we can learn from their response. When our lives are upended, we need to first of all cry out to the God who never abandons his people and who is always working on our behalf, even when we do not see his hand. He is aware. He is at work. And as we shall see next week, he will come to the aid of those who call on him. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.